0: Well, it would be extremely hard to accurately or vividly capture the horror of a World War I battlefield. This was a war with primitive tactics meeting the most advanced weaponry that the world had ever seen. And so you've got these horrific situations where people are literally charging on horses with lances against machine guns and poison gas, and tanks, and airplanes. In just one battle, one battle that took place over an extended period of time, the Battle of Somme, there were roughly a million casualties. I can't even fathom that. A million men either killed or wounded in just one of the battles. And here's the thing. It was an allied offensive. Do you know how much ground they gained over the course of that entire battle? Five miles. A million casualties for five miles. What did all that conflict accomplish? Well, there was a movie that came out about World War One. It came out not too long ago. It was called 1917. Anybody see that movie? Somebody saw it? Hard to watch. Really hard to watch. This movie provided just at least a little bit of a glimpse into the absolute devastation that is caused when you have two opposing sides... And they dig in to fortified positions, and then they just fire at each other. Dan was just—we were talking before this. Um, we started filming here. He was saying the technology had changed so much. The the shells or that the, they were firing at each other, the the um, the projectiles—they were the size of the cannons that have been used in the last war. I mean, it's just, we're talking, it's devastating. So it destroyed everything and, and just horrible. So you got a chance to see what happens when two opposing sides entrench themselves in fortified positions and then they fire at anything that's crossing that no man's land that isn't on your side. Well, my grandpa, Tom, he shared a similar tragic story to one of the characters in that film because in that film, it featured these two, they called them runners. And their whole mission was: you have important information that you need to run to get to the other places on the battlefield. Well, that was what my grandpa Tom did. Um, and often, what they would do is they'd send these runners at least two by two, with the hopes that at least one would make it alive. And so, I even brought a couple of things here. This is my grandpa's helmet here. Um, got his bayonet uh, at home. We've got uh, his his coat. We have his his gun, and. We have this. This is something that he brought back. He found it on the battlefield. And I almost forgot to mention um one of the things of similarities with that, that movie, my, my grandpa watched one of his best friends, get blown to pieces. You know, right there in front of him. Just horrible. Well, on that battlefield where people are just doing these horrible things to one another, he found this and it's in German. Um I think we can put this up on the screen, see if anyone can translate this. In German it's has mit uns. Does anyone know what that says in English? might be able to just guess. God with us. So evidently, there was some German in one of those trenches who thought, hey, God is on our side. God is on our side. It is amazing what you can justify when you think that God is with you and not with somebody else. When you're at war, I want to just point out a couple things and then we'll... we'll kind of work our way through it here. Here's a couple of relevant things that I want to point out about war. When you're at war, the fog of war can turn friends into foes. When you're at war, propaganda is used to dehumanize your opponents. When you're at war, trenches get deeper and no man's land gets deadlier. When you're at war, treaties should never be signed with people that aren't trustworthy. Well, for the last three weeks, we've been talking about blame. And I am so glad that you're with us this week. I'm going to explain why that is in just a minute. I'm also going to say what all this has to do, this trench warfare has to do with, with everything. But first, let me give you this recap of where we've been. In week one, we began laying out the case that blame is a really, really big deal. Really big deal. Blame usually backfires. And one of the things that happens is the very things that your brain's trying to do when you blame, those things don't happen. Actually, it gets worse instead of better. In week two, we trace blame all the way back to the beginning, or almost all the way back to the beginning, to the dawn of humanity. Blame is a primal instinct, a primal instinct that we all have. What what we're trying to do is we're trying to protect our self-image, we're trying to protect our social status by assigning faults to someone or something else. And then last week, we had a conversation about blaming circumstance, and how people, if you see yourself as a victim of circumstance, you're never going to reach your capacity. Well along the way, one of the things we've been trying to do is emphasize how humans, we've got this unique response ability. When the blame instinct gets triggered, we can literally retrain our amazing brains to not just act on that impulse, but to reroute that thought into the thinking parts of our brain. We can comp, we can process these complex data and respond in healthier and more helpful ways. Alright, so all that to say, here's why I'm really glad that you're here with us today. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to apply this unique responsibility we have to relationships. We're going to apply this to relationships. Nothing that we're going to say in this entire series is more important than what we're going to talk about today. Early in the series, we said there's at least two deep needs that everyone's got. We, we have a need to feel competent, and we have the need to feel love. Well, last week, we talked about how blaming circumstance can really work against this idea of feeling competent. Here's why today matters so much blame can work against that even deeper need that need to feel love We are hardwired for relationships and when I say that I'm not using a metaphor I, I'm we are literally hardwired for meta for relationships uh, if you Google <laughs> interpersonal neurobiology you'll find that that's a thing interpersonal neurobiology is a thing. And if you start following that trail where that takes you, you're going to come across terms like mirroring. You're going to come across terms like cuddle chemicals. There are physical reactions. There is physical wiring that we have that is designed to create strong bonds between people. It's designed to do that. Strong friendships, strong relationships. How many of you want to have strong bonds between people? We we all do. Blame works against that. It works against that. Here's what happens when we blame. Blame creates a battlefield. It creates a battlefield. When we blame others and others blame us, it triggers the same experience, the same res- response, I should say, that we experience when we're physically attacked. Your brain responds the same way. Here's how one of a team of researchers put it. Countless generations of genetic shaping drive humans to handle crucial conversations with fly fists and fleet feet. Not intelligent persuasion and general attentiveness. Two tiny organs seated neatly atop your kidneys pump adrenaline into your bloodstream. You don't choose to do this. Your adrenal glands do it, and then you got to live with it. And that's not all. Your brain then diverts blood from activities it deems non-essential to high-priority tasks like hitting or running. Unfortunately, the large muscles of the arms and legs, they get more blood. As they do, the higher level reasoning systems of your brain, sections of the brain get less. As a result, you end up facing challenging conversations with the same intellectual equipment available to what? A rhesus monkey. Your body is prepared to deal with an attacking saber-toothed tiger. Not your boss, not your neighbor, or your loved ones. Whether you believe, like these researchers do, that our brains evolved over millions of years, or whether you believe it's all part of what it means to be fearfully and wonderfully made, either way, everyone who studies the human brain knows that the blame response is real and it's universal. And here are just a few of the ways that blame backfires when it comes to relationships. Like I said earlier, blame creates a battlefield. It does this. It turns potential allies into adversaries. It's one of the things it does. When we blame others, others blame us. All our energy, it starts getting focused on attacking or defending instead of problem solving. Potential allies become adversaries. And if we're not careful, that leads to this next one. Blame is a slippery slope to what? To scapegoating. It is a very, very slippery slope that goes from here's something somebody did to here's who they are. And you start on that path, that is a dangerous path. It is a very, very slippery slope from, hey, we disagree, to they're the sinners, we're the saints. God is with us, he's not with them. When you start to dehumanize people in that way, we are capable of extremely inhumane things. Isn't that true? Unbelievable. Well, here's another thing that blame does. And once you see this tool that we're going to talk about, once you see this tool, you'll see it everywhere. So is everyone watching here? Let's, let's write it down first. Blame triggers the triangle trap. Blame triggers the triangle tap, trap. We mentioned this at the, the top end of the series. Let's come back to it now. Here's how this thing works. The more, if we throw that up on the screen, if we, the more that we blame others, the more our world starts looking like this. The person you disagree with, they're the villain. You are either then the victim or you're the rescuer. And that's how you begin to see the world. A psychiatrist named Stephen Cartman, he proposed a version of this model in the 1960s. The victim believes that the villain is the problem. They're using their power or position in a way that's harming others. The victim then sees himself as, I'm powerless. It's a poor me situation. And then they seek out help or sympathy from the rescuer. The rescuer is usually a really good person. The rescuer wants to help, and they see a poor them situation. But here's the thing. Rescuers, a lot is going on in our subconscious in these situations. And we can get drawn into a storyline and feel really good that we're helping people and not stop to go, wait a minute, is this storyline actually accurate or telling the whole story? And it's so easy to miss that you might actually be enabling unhealthy behaviors rather than trying to help people process things. I'm seeing some people nodding really big right now. Okay, that brings us to the next bullet. Here's another way that blame creates a battlefield. Blaming quickly makes it harder to find your fix. When you just jump to blame, it makes it harder and harder to find your fix. Last word uh, last week, I learned a brand new word from my daughter. She was up um, from, from school. Ops. Ops. My 19-year-old taught this to me. It's a word that refers to someone who's opposing you. It's an enemy. Well, when you start labeling people, whether it's ops or whatever you want to call them, you're going to start falling into that triangle trap. And then it's trench warfare, isn't it? Because you dig in to your position, they dig into theirs, and either you're with me or against me, so anyone in in no man's land is getting shot at by somebody because you got to pick a side. We're using primitive thinking, primitive techniques. We're digging into our muddy, miserable trenches, and then we're taking shots at our enemies, creating a no man's land for anyone who's not in our trench or ours is that the world you want to live in? It's not the world I want to live in. It's not the world I even want to contribute to. But that's the world that blame creates. Consider these quotes. Here's the first quote. Blaming others is a great way to make friends and influence people. Who said that? Nobody, ever. That's not a real quote. The best minds in in all kinds of... I mean, you can find quotes on this everywhere. Like here's one on business, from the business world. Henry Ford said, if there is any one secret of success, it lies in the ability to get the person's point of view and to see things from that person's angle as well as your own. Here's a quote from another guy. I love this guy. We're going to circle back to him in just a few minutes. His name is Chris Voss. I love him because this guy is, he's a tough guy. He used to be the lead hostage negotiator for the FBI. So he studies people. And here's what he one of the things he says. He says, once people get upset with one another... Rational thinking goes where? Just out the window. Here's another quote. This is from Dr. Brene Brown. She's a researcher, very different person than Chris Voss. She's an expert in the areas of shame and vulnerability. She says this, a deep sense of love and belonging. It is an irreducible need of all women, all men, all children. We are biologically, cognitively, physically and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. Here's another quote. This is a psychiatrist named Kurt Thompson. He specializes in helping people develop authentic relationships where you're truly known. This is such a profound quote. Every newborn comes into the world looking for someone, looking for her. This is the deepest need we have. This need to be loved. It's such a deep need. Relationships, healthy, life-giving relationships, deep, deep longing for every one of us. What does blame do? Blame blows that up. Blame creates toxic environments where it is so hard to have real relationships. If you're trying to create a family, if you're trying to deepen your friendships, if you want to foster a healthy culture at work or on a team or as a church, blame will blow it up. Let me give you one more quote, and then we're going to open our Bibles together. 20 years of research involving more than 100,000 people reveals that the key skill of effective leaders, teammates, parents, and loved ones is the capacity to skillfully address emotionally and politically risky issues, period. It is not an exaggeration to say, this is life and death stuff. It is not exaggeration to say, This is the type of thing that leads people literally into war. Does anyone want to not make their relationships worse? (laughs) All right, then let's get better at this. And today I'm really excited. We're going to look at the words of Jesus of Nazareth. We're going to go straight to his words. In 2015, here's why we're going to go there. In 2015 as a church, we began a deep dive into how do you do conflict resolution well. Because we were in a space where we were not doing it well. It, the, the conflict we were going through back then was so intense, I lost 14 pounds in two weeks. Some of you were there for that. We took our staff through a facilitated off-site retreat. We brought in outside experts. We consulted counselors. We read a ton of books. And here's what we saw repeated over and over and over again. Of all the best practices out there, of all of these 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 common themes through all of these different sources, all of them were directly anchored to biblical principles, whether they knew that or not. All of them. All of these key principles are related. They are rooted to biblical principles. With the time we got left, I want to just give you a small sampling from the words of Jesus himself. So here we go. My heading here is science is catching up with scripture. Let's start with this. Jesus said, a house divided can't stand. Is he right with that? Absolutely. A house divided, can't stand. If you have a Bible with you, let's take a look here. Open with me, please, to Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. If you don't have a Bible at home, these are such helpful principles. We encourage you, go right now, hit pause, go to Bible.com, you can download a great Bible app for free on that site. All right, here we go. Matthew 12, uh, verse 25. Jesus said, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided itself is laid waste. Does that sounded all like trench warfare, no man's land. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. A house divided, a kingdom divided, a family divided, a friend group divided will not stand. Which is why the greatest church planter in history gave us this instruction, Titus 3.10. As for the person who stirs up division... After warning them once and then twice, what does Paul say? He says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have nothing more to do with it There's different principles that Jesus himself then provides, saying, okay, you don't want a divided house? Here's some principles, practical stuff. Let's look at these. Um, I invite you to write this one down. Where do you start? You start with self-reflection. All the best practices you're going to find, that's where it starts. It starts with yourself. Before pointing the finger at others, before going on that blame, Um, rampage, start with yourself. Matthew chapter seven, verses three through five. It says this. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Again, this is where all of the most effective, problem-solving, bridge-building models start, with personal reflection. If you study blame, one of the terms you're going to come across really early in your study is what's called the fundamental attribution error. This is why it's so important to start with yourself. Fundamental attribution error. It's about this, when you're doing this, you're holding people to a higher standard than you're holding yourself. For example, if someone else is late, you're like, you insensitive, uncaring person. You know, you blame them for being late. When we're late, what do we blame? Something else, some, right? Somebody else or something else. That, that's a fundamental attribution error. When you're looking at somebody else, you're blaming their character. When you look at yourself, you're blaming circumstance. Fundamentally attributing something to someone else that you're not doing to yourself. All right, before we start blaming others, Jesus said, start with your own blind spots. All right, once we've done that, then we move on to this. This is from Matthew 18. Hold one another accountable to a process. A process. We will disagree. When we do, it is so important that we're not making it up on the spot. It's also important that we're not changing it at the time. It is important when you're going through conflict, have a process you agreed upon ahead of time that you're going to hold each other accountable to. Here's a process that Jesus outlines for us. He says, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell them their fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then go tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen then to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, I do want to say when there's an allegation of abuse, you go right to the authorities, right? But in, in many cases, in most situations, what Jesus just gave here, this is a great template. This is again, this is best practices. Number one, what do you do? You start by identifying what are we talking about here? And notice how they talk about sins. How often do people escalate things that aren't sin to sin? Right? So start to assess, is this a sin? Is this, a difference in the values of an organization is what, what is this going on? Let's talk about it. Because if it's just a difference of opinion, then let's call it what it is. If it's something more, then let's name that. So begin by identifying what it is. What kind of conversation are you having? Then number two, go to that person directly. This, all that sideways stuff, it makes stuff worse. It escalates things. Just go to them directly. And before we close, we're going to give you several great resources that can help you with those difficult conversations. Okay, number three. If you try, but you can't solve it alone, then have another person come. Get another perspective in there where you can talk and listen and try to have a a helpful conversation. Again, what you don't want to do is just keep escalating this thing right away, getting all kinds of factions going, because then it's almost impossible to try to undo the damage that's been done. And then number four have a mediation group in place so that if you've done your best to try to resolve conflict, you have a place where you've agreed upon ahead of time, here's who's going to help solve and make some sort of decision on this. Jesus had so much to teach us about community and healthy relationships. Let me just give you one more, one more. And this one, the reason out of all the things I could talk about, the reason I'm doing this one is because nice church people, we often don't like to talk like this. But we need to talk like this. So here's the last one. Matthew 7, 15 to 20 is the reference we're going to look at. Remember that trust is earned. I'm glad that I'm hearing some people going, "Uh uh-huh. It's earned. Trust is earned. Jesus taught us, as we talked about before many times, we're to be both as innocent as doves, but also as wise as serpents. This is about being as wise as a serpent. There's many different ways Jesus talked about this. Here's here's one of the ways He frames it out. Matthew seven fifteen through twenty. Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are what? These are Jesus' words. They're ravenous wolves. You recognize recognize them by what? Their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? For figs from thistles? Every healthy tree bears good fruit. The diseased tree bears bad fruit. Thus, you recognize them by the fruit. Their actions we have said this before in the series. I'll say it again. This is the blame, space, less series. It is not the don't blame anyone ever in any circumstances series. That's not what we're talking about. If you're only going to read one book this year, read the Bible. If you're going to read two books, though, let me give you another suggestion. I'm serious. If you're going to read two books, read the Bible and this one, trust Dr. Henry Cloud. This is an outstanding, outstanding resource. Just as you wouldn't want to sign a treaty in a war with someone you can't trust, You've seen how that goes, right? One of the other things you don't want to do is not hold people accountable for their actions. Holding people accountable for their actions is wise. Cloud reminds us of this. He says, what someone has done before is usually the best indicator of what will happen next time. Trust is incremental and earn. What does this have to do with blame? It's one thing to just be contributing to a culture of blame where we're just throwing blame around without stopping to think. It's another thing that if you have somebody that's consistently dropping the ball or consistently doing behaviors over and over and over again that should be corrected, that's not about blaming. That's about holding someone accountable. That's in the organization's best interest. That's in your best interest. That That's not blame. That's just holding people accountable, right? So that's good. There, we should be held accountable to that. We need to be for everyone's sake. Here's another quote from Cloud. When we are trying to build trust in others, we must be aware that we're always building a map, a track record in someone's head. That map will make them able to trust us or not. By our fruit, we're known. Cloud also reminds us, and this is so important, there are people that want to hurt you. There are people that want to take advantage of you. The Bible describes people who are walking in evil ways. It's not about blame in this situation, like just throwing it around. It's about, no, there are some people, you need to say your behaviors. I need to put space between me and you. This is not wise. This is not safe. Can't recommend that book highly enough. It can help you with questions like, what is trust? When is it wise to extend it? When is it wise to withhold it, or at least to be cautious? How do you earn it? How do you earn it back once it's been broken? Cloud's book is one of many books and resources that can help you develop healthier and stronger relationships with teams, friends, cultures. Two weeks ago, what we did is we compared our unique responsibility as people to a powerful lithium battery. We said, okay, big front-end investment, but it's worth it. Once you make that investment, you can plug that thing into so many situations. What I want to do is I want to give you some resources here. Big front-end investment of time. You work through some of these things, you can plug it into friendships, you can plug it into your businesses, you can plug it into your schools, your sports teams, it's worth it. I already referenced trust by Henry Cloud as one of those investments. I also highly recommend this one, Difficult Conversations. It's by a team of people, Douglas Stone, Bruce Patton, I'm Sheila Heen. This is so good. I could talk for hours about this. Let me just give you one little teaser from this book. I love this. They said every difficult conversation you have is really three conversations. It's the what happened conversation. It's the feelings conversation. It's the identity conversation. You got to have all three of those. So good. All right. Another book. Um, Crucial conversations, lots of overlap between crucial conversations and difficult conversations, but there's also some content that's unique to each of them. Oh, this one of the reasons why it's just worth this whole book is just this one piece I'm going to give you now, um, where he says this team of researchers, they said what you want to make sure you do, start with the facts, not the story. <laughs> right? Isn't that simple but brilliant? Because we get the story in our head. Oh, here's what they're thinking. Here's why they did that. Here's what and often that's just a story we made up in our heads. Start with the facts, not the story. That is such good good stuff. All right. Here's how someone described this tendency to make these stories. Our perceptions are influenced by what psycho- psychologists call cognitive illusions. These are the subconscious mental maps that often get in the way of accurate or rational assessments. We tend to forget that our brains are talented forgers weaving a tapestry of memory and perception whose detail is so compelling its authenticity is rarely detected. well said. All right. I wanted to stop at three resources, Trinity, three, but I couldn't leave this one out. This is a guy I talked about earlier, Chris Voss. He was the international hostage negotiator for the FBI. I mean, this guy, you talk about high-stakes conversations. You talk about high-pressure conversations. He was regularly in conversations where lives were on the line, all right? So this guy, this is hard-won wisdom. This is research-based. He didn't have time for just foolishness or theory, right? This is real-life stuff. So a couple quick things I just want to touch on from that. This one was counterintuitive, but it's so true. He says, what you really don't want to hear, if you're having a conversation and you're trying to have, trying to get some movement, he said, you don't want to hear, your are right. You want to hear, that's right. He said, you're right. Often as people just, they're just dismissing. They're like, I'm backing out. They, I'm just going to tell them what they want to hear so I can get out of this. That's right, he said. That's where he starting to make traction, when people say." So brilliant. Okay, one more I want to give you from that book. We'll put this one quote on the screen. In two famous studies on what makes us like or dislike somebody. So this is like, do you like some? Do they like you? Do they dislike you? Okay, UCLA psychology professor Albert M. He created the seven thirty eight fifty five rule. Only seven percent of our messages words. Thirty eight percent is our tone of voice 55% body and face i saw some more research they talked about our our minds are so good we pick up on micro expressions we don't even consciously know it but we betray it's the tell right we in a millisecond we have these expressions and our mind picks that up and we're like oh that was contempt oh that was you know. It, it really, really matters. Okay, again, there's so much great stuff. What I'm going to do in the ECC mail that's coming this coming week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these resources I've been talking about throughout this whole series. I'll put those in there as well as some links to some other stuff. So that stuff will be coming, coming your way. But as we bring our time together today to a close, I want to leave you with this reminder that the bar is really, really low in our culture right now. If you want to shine, if you want to be a witness, by just blaming less, you're going to stand out. Let me give you an example here and then show you a graph. that's a twist on one we looked at earlier. Not long ago, I was in a situation where I felt I needed to have a difficult conversation with the soccer club that one of my daughters was a part of. And I was tempted, on the result of the behaviors that I saw, I was tempted to come in pretty strong. But I'm like, okay, that's not going to go nowhere. So I used my responsibilities. I used a whole lot of stuff from here. whole lot of stuff from here. Again, blame creates a battlefield. There are better ways. There's biblical principles. There's helpful practices to build bridges. So I did my, my best to do that. So I started with a conversation with the coaches. And then... That led to conversation with the directors. And then before I knew it, I'm having a conversation with the president of the club. I didn't plan on that, but I'm a president. And before this was done, he was asking me to be on his board. (laughs) Now, I came in with a concern, but I got asked to do the board. And this is not a brag story. This is about how low the bar is in our culture, where people are just looking for people who don't come in with guns blazing, but who really try to understand before trying to be understood. Consider how brightly we'll shine as families and friend groups and teams and organizations and churches when people spend time with us and they don't see the drama triangle and they don't see people jumping to blame. They don't see us at each other and they don't see factions forming and all this kind of nonsense when we're not falling into the triangle trap, but rather we're falling to this. I'd never seen this um, before a couple weeks ago. Uh, Pastor Dan showed me this. Could um, you throw up the empowerment triangle there? Where they flip that whole triangle upside down. And it's not villain, it's not victim, it's not rescuer. It's challenger, coach, and creator. I love this. where we're all working together for a common cause... We got a challenger who's casting a vision that's a challenging one, but who, who is, is, trying to inspire and encourage people and equip them. The creators are using their unique response abilities to increase capacities and overcome challenges. And then you got coaches that are out there enabling. They're really trying to help. So I'll send this link to, in the ECC mail as well. A house divided can't stand, can't stand, but you do stuff like this, like this triangle. It's amazing what we can do when we unite around God-honoring principles. A house divided can't stand, but have you ever seen an Amish barn raising? What is possible when we come together and we work together? A house divided can't stand, but we can build, can't we? And the world can see that. I don't have a clip of a barn raising, but I got something that's really fun. It's just a tiny little clip. Mike, do you want to put this up on the screen? What you're seeing here is a whole lot of Amish folks. And they needed to move this barn. They could have had it for free if they could move it off of one property to another. Do you see all those tiny little feet? That is a whole lot of people working together to literally carry a barn. A house divided, can't stand. Look what we can do together. Let's do that. The world sees enough battlefields, doesn't it? There's enough of them out there. The world could use more of that. So if you haven't already, get one of these little wristbands as a reminder to blame less. And then I want to encourage you to do this. Um, oh, I want to say this too. If you want, we can send you one of those wristbands. If you're not able to join us in person, just go to next. Say, hey, we'd, I'd love a wristband. We'll get you one. But between now and next week, I really want to encourage you. We're, last week of the series, read the book of Esther in the Old Testament section of the Bible. I reread it this morning. Coincidentally, we were both reading it today. It's so fun. I reread it this morning. It's got everything we're talking about. It's all there. Um, This whole idea of people using responsibility to overcome circumstances, people accessing power beyond their own, people falling into the triangle trap, people challenging, coaching, stepping up, real danger from real enemies, it's all there. And you're even going to get this. In light of just what's happening in our world, you'll get some bonus insights into Israel's histories of people and why that situation that's happening across the ocean is so, so tragic. It'll help you a little with that too. So put on a wristband, read Esther. Hope we can see you next week as we bring this series to a close and then talk about, okay, where do we go from here? God bless you. Have a great week.